There is one thing a congregation dislikes even more than Stewardship Sunday, and that is a sermon on the wrath of God. To contend that the wrath of God is coming upon the whole world, and it is, is to be thought of as some sort of a fundamentalist with a misguided faith of a snake handler, or even the mindset of a jihadi terrorist. And anyone who believes such a thing is considered a kooky zealot who probably carries around a sandwich board sign which reads, Repent, for the end is near. Since Paul ties Christ's second advent to this coming day of wrath, he creates a very difficult problem for all forms of premillennialism. Those folks who insist that Jesus Christ's return will usher in a thousand-year reign upon the earth with the final judgment not occurring until the millennium comes to an end. How does that fit with Paul's declaration, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9-10, to that deliverance from the coming wrath of God occurs when Jesus Christ returns? Well, here's a hint, it doesn't. What does this say to those engaged in the pre- or post-tribulation debate, and to the dispensationalist whose expectation is that there will be a future seven-year tribulation period on the earth? Well, we'll tackle these issues and more in this edition of the Blessed Hope Podcast. I'm Kim Riddlebarger, your host, and this is Episode 4 of Season 2 of the Blessed Hope Podcast. Our Season 2 series is devoted to a study of Paul's Thessalonian letters and is entitled, When the Lord Jesus is Revealed from Heaven. Our text for this episode is 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9-10. through We begin this episode where we left off last time in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and we made our way as far as verse 8. But in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of that which is being reported about them throughout the region. Despite their questions, the Thessalonians did pretty well in Paul's eschatology class. He writes, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul makes several key points here. 1. The Thessalonians have turned from idols. 2. They are to wait for the risen and ascended Jesus to return from heaven. And three, upon his return, Jesus will deliver his people from the wrath to come. This connects Christ's return to deliver his people directly to the day of wrath, which is the day of judgment. One writer speaks of this as the double-edged sword of rescue from wrath to come, the ultimate realization of the blessing-curse principle. And this leaves no room for any sort of a premillennial golden age to occur between Christ's return and the final judgment. But there are other points here worth careful consideration as well. 
The first of these is that Gentiles who turned from idols to serve the living God paid a heavy price for doing so. Christians couldn't do what Greco-Roman pagans would do when they encountered a new religion. Simply add the new religion to the pantheon of the existing ones, including the family gods. Embracing the living God through faith in his son Jesus meant all the pagan gods were nothing but the figment of the sinful human imagination. The Thessalonian pagans would have felt much anger and dismay at any family member who became a Christian. When a pagan became a Christian in Thessalonica, it meant rejecting family traditions, the household gods, and religious celebrations, all of which centered around the veneration of such gods in light of their role in the afterlife. The dramatic break with the past at the time of conversion meant that it didn't take long for the Jews to realize the serious threat Christianity posed to their traditions. But the pagans, too, were coming to realize that new Christians rejected their former gods, their polytheistic religion, and were therefore thought to be intolerant, because they insisted that Jesus was Lord and that you could not follow him and still keep your idols. These Christians have acquired quite the reputation. We read that the Jews thought they had turned the world upside down. Now the Gentiles were seeing that fact, too. Second, while easy to miss, there is yet another significant Old Testament echo when Paul speaks of the Thessalonians turning from idols. According to Frank Thielman, taken individually, Paul's application of these terms, i.e. the assembly of the Lord and called, to the Thessalonians would not be particularly significant. After all, Thielman notes, the term ecclesia had been used in Greek literature for centuries prior to Paul to refers simply to an assembly of the people for a particular purpose. Paul certainly could have referred to the Thessalonians as chosen and loved by God without thinking specifically of the use of that language to describe Israel in the Bible. Yet Paul's use of these terms, together with his use of them to describe the transformation of the Thessalonian believers from people who worshipped idols to people who served the living and true God in verse 9, shows, as Thielman concludes, Paul views the conversion of the Thessalonians as analogous to, and perhaps even a recapitulation of what happened to Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. Once we realize Paul's purpose in using this language, it should come as no surprise that in spite of the Thessalonians' good behavior, as Paul will go on to recount in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul emphasizes sanctification in the two letters. Tillman goes on. Just as in Leviticus, Israel's pursuit of sanctification is a response to God's election, so in the Thessalonian correspondence, the believer's election and their sanctification go hand in hand. And he cites 1 Thessalonians 4 7, 5 23 through 24, and 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 13 to 14. He concludes that, moreover, Just as in Leviticus, the purpose of sanctification is to separate Israel from the surrounding people, so in the Thessalonian correspondence, it is intended to distinguish the assembly of the Thessalonians in God and in our Lord Jesus Christ from those outside, who do not belong to the community. And he cites 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 5, like the heathen who do not know God, and he compares that and contrasts that with 
chapter 4, verse 12, the respect of outsiders. So we, the contemporary readers of the Thessalonian letters, are much like the Gentile converts in the first century. The Old Testament is not our thought world, but it was for Paul. We may connect turning from idols to conversion, that is, faith and repentance, as Paul does, since we're pretty familiar with that concept after 2,000 years of doctrinal debate over repentance and faith. But given his deep knowledge of the Old Testament, the Apostle also sees Gentiles turning from idols as connecting Gentiles to the true Israel of God, a point that we're apt to miss if we're not listening for these echoes from Paul drawn from the Old Testament, even when he's writing to Gentiles. A third point to be drawn from verses 9 to 10 is that when Paul refers to the fact that there's one God, the true and living God, who has raised his son Jesus from the dead, and who has promised that his son will return from heaven to rescue believers from his wrath, or from the day of judgment, or eternal punishment, Paul is likely summarizing the content of early Christian preaching grounded in the basic facts about God's free gift of salvation offered in Jesus Christ through his sinless life, his death and burial, his resurrection and ascension. Gordon V. points out here, and I think this is really interesting, and I'd never considered this before, but it should be noted that this is the earliest known reference in all Christian literature to the resurrection of Christ, the single most crucial event in early and all Christian faith. So remember, the Thessalonian letters were written before the Gospels. The fact that the Thessalonians responded to this message in faith, Paul attributes to the power of the Holy Spirit, not his rhetorical skill in closing the deal. Paul describes his hearers and readers turning to the true and living God from their Greco-Roman gods and family idols as strong evidence that the majority of those in the Thessalonian church were in fact Gentiles. It's unlikely that Paul would speak of Jews as turning from idols, although sadly many Jews had made peace with the Gentile idolatry all around them in a city like Thessalonica. The conversion of these Gentiles was clearly demonstrated in their new conduct, which was obvious to those around them. They had repented from their sin, their idolatry, and they had turned to the true and living God, supremely revealed in Jesus Christ. There had been, as Leon Morris puts it, quoting, a reorientation of the whole of life, end of quote. They rejected idolatry, and their striving to live lives of gratitude, having come alive to the commandments of God. This is clear evidence of genuine repentance, since these new Christians had turned from idols despite the cost, and placed their faith in the Jesus preached by Paul. Although not mentioned, they undoubtedly were baptized in a public ceremony. And that's the sort of thing that people notice. Throughout the book of Acts, repentance, which is the act of turning to God and away from sin, usually as a response to the preaching of the law, is spoken of in the Reformed tradition as conversion. And we find similar language in the book of Acts, Acts 3.19, So we find this kind of language in the book of Acts in multiple passages. 
Those in the Reformed tradition traditionally speak of conversion as the conscious awareness of prior regeneration, specifically the act of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, which produces a corresponding turning away from sin, which is repentance. In the case of the Jews, conversion amounted to giving up a false belief about Yahweh, acknowledging Jesus to be the Messiah and the Son of God, as well as receiving the merits of Jesus through faith, and no longer counting upon works of law to justify. But in the case of Gentiles, it is turning from the worship of false gods to worship of the true and living God who is revealed in Jesus Christ. The Jews reacted with such anger to Paul's preaching, likely because of the implications that Paul was drawing from the Old Testament. They caught the echoes from Paul, which we probably miss. Paul's preaching that those whom they thought of as dogs, Gentiles, because they were ceremonially unclean, those same unclean people are now included, Paul says, among the people of God. And that would have been very hard to swallow. Ben Witherington explains the impact that Paul's preaching may have had upon the Jews in Thessalonica. Quoting, If Paul indeed came and preached in the synagogue in Thessalonica, proclaiming that the Thessalonians needed to turn from idols, worship the one true God, and recognize his only son Jesus, and he here is citing from this text, we can understand why some Jews would immediately be alarmed. Already in a compromised situation because of the very recent expulsion of Jews from Rome, and he's referring there to the Edict of Claudius in AD 49, Jews in Thessalonica knew that they had to show the utmost loyalty to the emperor, lest they too be suspected of sedition. He continues, If they had, unawares, allowed Paul to preach his message in their synagogues, they themselves could be accused of being troublemakers or disloyal to the ethos of the city. And this explains, he says, both the enormous reaction the Jews recounted in Acts 17.6 and the equally polemical response and outburst by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 14-16. The Jews, then, would have greatly feared that any toleration of Christians who were assumed to be subversives because they claimed to serve a king named Jesus and not Caesar that might lead to conflict with the civil authorities, and that's something the Jews certainly did not want to see happen. The irony here is that in rejecting Jesus as Israel's long-expected Messiah, the Jews are seen by Paul as those who had turned away from Yahweh, while the pagan Gentiles were doing the opposite. They were abandoning their idols and turning to Yahweh. There are only two references to atheists in the Old Testament. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's found in Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53, verse 1. But there are many warnings about idolatry flowing out of the first two commandments. And here again, a number of Old Testament echoes about idolatry lay behind Paul's comments here. The psalmist, for example, had written, For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens, citing from Psalm 96, verse 5. And then in Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8, we read the following. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. 
Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Yet another Old Testament text, which is clearly in the background, is Jeremiah's pronouncement of God's warning to Israel, found in Jeremiah 10, verses 1 through 10. The prophet says, Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. Your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsman and the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. And so to be converted in Christian theology is to turn away from these false gods described by Jeremiah to faith in the true and living God who was revealed in Jesus Christ, and then embrace Yahweh in his glorious covenant promise to be God to his people. Not only did the Thessalonians turn to the true and living God, they were awaiting the return of his Son from heaven, because he will provide their ultimate deliverance. The verb to wait used here is unique to the New Testament. On a meno, although it is widely used in the Septuagint, and the Septuagint, of course, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It means waiting with patience and trust as something sustained and which does not waver when the expected result does not immediately occur. Christians are to wait patiently and to live in holiness until the blessed hope, which is our Lord Jesus' return. The centrality of such hope and the exhortation to wait is a solid indication that not only did Paul preach the bodily resurrection of Christ crucified to the Thessalonians, as we see in verse 10, but Christ's second advent was a central theme of his preaching, summarized in the church's liturgical formula we read at the beginning of this series, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ shall come again, a summary of the creed. The hope of the Thessalonian Christians was therefore anchored in the expectation that Christ Jesus would soon return to earth to deliver his people and spare them from the final judgment. 
Many of the Thessalonians apparently fully expected this to occur in their own lifetimes. We get a hint at this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and 17, and again in chapter 5, verse 4. And this, despite Paul's exhortation to wait patiently should the Lord's return be delayed. And so as we look back on Paul's exhortation 2,000 years later with 2,000 years of hindsight, we ought to have a good sense of the patience required by the people of God. Indeed, Paul's instruction about the nature and timing of the Lord's return explains the questions raised precisely because of the delay of our Lord's second coming. These questions prompted Paul to write and to instruct and correct some of these misconceptions. The basis for Christian hope is that as God had raised Jesus from the dead, so too our Lord's second coming will be to raise believers from the dead. As the Father raised his Son, so too he will raise all those who trust in the Son on the day of the Lord's return, when, as Paul adds, we are delivered from the wrath to come. The fact of Christ's bodily resurrection, followed by his ascension to the Father, and that includes his rule over all the kingdoms and the affairs of men, his so-called kingly office, that sets the stage for his bodily return to earth to deliver his own and judge the world on the last day. Christ's resurrection gives the Thessalonians hope that they too will be delivered from God's eschatological judgment, that is, final judgment. The term Paul uses when he speaks of deliverance is ruomai, which means rescue from harm or danger or even things like imprisonment. As the Thessalonians, in the midst of their struggles, look ahead to this great day of Christ's return, they are to live lives of gratitude, which reflect Christian, not pagan, morality. But the same does not hold true for unbelievers, which is why it is important to consider in some detail Paul's doctrine of the coming wrath of God. Paul directly connects revelation of this wrath to the appearing of the Son of God, Jesus, from heaven. While the Christian believer looks forward to the coming of Christ as the day of redemption, the non-Christian can only look forward to final judgment. For those who trust in him, our Lord's return is pure gospel, the ultimate manifestation of his grace and mercy. But for the non-Christian, Christ's second advent is pure law. Guilt, condemnation, judgment. The former is the best possible news. The latter is the worst possible news. B.B. Warfield says of Paul's preaching, and I'm quoting, It is undeniable that the staple of Paul's preaching to Gentiles was God and the judgment. Wow. To Jews, Paul preached the Messiah to whom their own prophets had foretold. Quoting Warfield again, But with Gentiles, Paul could appeal only to the conscience, and he preached Jesus to them as him through whom God would judge the world in righteousness, whereof he hath given assurance to all men in that he hath raised him, Jesus, from the dead. Warfield's assertions here, no doubt, cause many to cringe. No one wants to think about a coming day of judgment yet ahead when God's wrath will be revealed, much less preach or talk about it. 
Sermons on God's wrath are not popular. They make people uncomfortable. And therefore, sermons on the wrath of God are rare, and they're usually mocked when they're given. But Paul is clear as clear can be that there is a day of wrath to come here in verse 10. And he mentions it multiple times in his letters. Romans 1.18, Romans 9.22, Ephesians 5.6, and Colossians 3.6, in addition to his several mentions of the coming wrath in his letters to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Paul writes, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-10, to he states, quoting, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Given the discomfort raised by this topic, and especially by Paul's words here, Many of our contemporaries openly reject the very idea of the wrath of God, especially since God is elsewhere said to be loved, 1 John 4, verse 8. If God is love, well, then how can he be wrathful? Well, according to Leon Morris, who frames the issue well, and I'm quoting, the idea of wrath of God is uncongenial to many people in modern times, and there have been attempts to get rid of the whole idea. And here... Morris is thinking, no doubt, of the English biblical scholar C.H. Dodd, who in his book, The Bible and the Greeks, dismissed the whole idea and turned wrath into something like a reciprocity principle. You do bad things, bad things will happen. Well, back to Morris. It is sometimes said that it has no foundation in the Old Testament, the prophets and the psalmists being concerned only to point out when people sin, disaster follows. God's direct intervention is not stressed so that a more or less impersonal process is being described. Such an attitude can be maintained only by neglecting a great number of Old Testament passages. The prophets and the psalmists know nothing of an impersonal process of retribution. They see the hand of God everywhere, in the punishment of the wicked, as well as in the rewarding of the righteous. The same is true of the New Testament, says Morris. All things are of God, and he cites a number of passages. In any case, the wrath is explicitly linked with God, and he cites again a whole number of passages. The renunciation of God's wrath is common in mainline Protestant liberalism, but it's also now found in much of American evangelicalism. Clark Pinnock's 1992 case for the wideness in God's mercy was challenged by many upon its publication. But his stress on God's mercy winning out over his wrath, coupled with a proposal for a more inclusive view of salvation when looking at the world religions, and this is along the line of Karl Rahner, the Roman Catholic theologian's universalism that we see in the Second Vatican Council, this introduced 
these concepts of a wideness in God's mercy into the evangelical bloodstream, where they have in many places become the norm. Other books followed in the wake of Penix, such as the Lost Message of Jesus, which just rejects the myth of redemptive violence, that is, a sacrificial atonement on a cross where blood is shed, and this excludes all notions, the authors say, of God possessing wrath in response to human sin. This sort of thing succeeds in contemporary America given the stress placed upon political egalitarianism and Rawlsian notions of justice as fairness. Many who hold to strong private religious opinions, even orthodox opinions, are reluctant to speak of God's wrath or contend that their own religion is true to the exclusion of all others, even if by its very nature Christianity is a truth claim which summons its adherents to turn from idol worship to serve the true and living God or else face the wrath of God in the judgment, as the Thessalonians are here being warned. Our contemporaries regard any hint or mention of God's wrath as the sin of judgmentalism. How dare a Christian tell a non-Christian that if they do not trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, they'll be eternally condemned. Those who believe this are considered fire and brimstone rubes who hang on to outdated, ridiculous beliefs when intelligent moderns know better and dismiss them. The Thessalonians very likely heard first-century equivalents when they rejected the Greco-Roman gods, especially those of home and hearth. Christians are exclusive, divisive, and therefore a subversive threat. Better to drive them out of town then let them stay and get a foothold. As we've seen, Paul's discussion of pagan Gentiles turning from their idols is filled with loud echoes from the Old Testament and it is a continuation of our discussion of the church as the renewed Israel in episode 3. In verses 9 to 10, it becomes very clear that Paul understands our Lord's return as a double-edged sword, accomplishing deliverance for his people while at the same time bringing about the dreaded day of God's wrath. And we'll return to our text momentarily, but before we do, a couple things I'd like to do. First up, thanks again to those of you who have left good ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. It's truly appreciated. The Blessed Hope is on a number of podcast feeds, so if your favorite feed allows ratings and reviews, please do so because it really helps people find the podcast when searching for it. If you like what I'm doing with my deep dive into the biblical text, please recommend the podcast to anyone whom you might think would enjoy and and profit from the kinds of things we're doing here. The audience continues to steadily grow, so I want to thank all of you who have told your friends and used your social media to announce new episodes when they're released. Thank you so much, and please keep it up. It's really working and helping. Show notes for this and all past episodes can be found at the Riddle blog, kimriddlebarger.com, all one word, lowercase, kimriddlebarger.com, and you can look under the Blessed Hope podcast tab. 
There are lots of updates at the blog, new podcast art, which you probably noticed, as well as all kinds of essays on biblical eschatology, lots of exposition of biblical passages, uh, discussions of the Reformed Confession, years of sermons, information about my books, and a whole bunch more. So go to the Riddle blog and check it out, kimriddlebarger.com, lowercase, all one word, kimriddlebarger.com. As always, please read through the text of the Thessalonian letters in one sitting and listen to these letters read aloud. The whole point of this podcast is to give you the background information to these books of the Bible so that you feel at home in them, that you know what's in them, and that you can connect what's in these books to other passages of Holy Scripture. So, tala lege, take up and read. So, let's get back to our text and pick up where we left off with our discussion of the wrath of God, and then we'll wrap up with a look at the problems premillenarians face in light of Paul's connection of the hope of deliverance with the coming wrath of God. Despite the difficulties people may have with the inevitability of a coming day of judgment, Paul locates the time of God's eschatological wrath, that is, the idea of a final judgment, at the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. What is to come for those who trust in Jesus Christ, the blessed hope, which is deliverance from the wrath of God, is at the same time for unbelievers that day when, quoting from Revelation Chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. The kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves, and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall upon us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Christ's return is Judgment Day. It is the final day in human history. Despite our modern sensitivities, the notion of God's wrath is an important biblical doctrine and must not be overlooked because it's frightening, uncomfortable, and divisive to those who renounce the very Savior who alone could rescue from that wrath to come. But to get some theological perspective on this idea, let's back up a bit and recall that our Lord's Messianic mission commenced when John the Baptist declared of him, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's from Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. It may come as a surprise to many, but Jesus had more to say about the reality of final judgment than did any of Israel's prophets. Jesus' teaching, and Paul's, cannot be reduced to a mere reciprocity principle. You do bad things, and bad things will happen to you. You might create a personal hell on earth. That's nothing but a Christianized version of karma. 
No. Jesus and Paul tell us that there is a final judgment and eternal punishment to come. There is a heaven to gain and there is a hell to shun. In order to comfort believers in Thessalonica who had questions about these matters, much like we do today, Paul reminds them that they need not fear the approaching day of wrath. All who believe in Jesus are reminded that Jesus is both the rescuer of his people as well as the righteous judge of those who are not. Here's that double-edged sword image again. If Jesus has taken away the wrath of God for his people in his sufferings on the cross, and we could look at a passage like Romans 5, 9, then we need never face God's wrath and therefore not fear the day of judgment. Well, let's get specific. What does Paul mean by the phrase wrath of God, the orge to theu? In light of Paul's two-age eschatology, Christians presently live in an age characterized by the tension between the already, which are the blessings and benefits we presently possess in Christ, and the not yet. That's the final consummation when all benefits of salvation are realized in their fullness. The current age, therefore, is an age of common grace, when the full weight of God's judgment has not yet been meted out, nor has salvation been fully realized in the resurrection and glorification of our bodies. But Paul's warning remains. God's patience will one day come to an end. And this will occur at God's appointed time, on the last day, the day of the Lord, a day of final wrath which is certain to come. When Paul speaks of God's wrath, his orge, he uses a word which refers to the revelation of God's anger toward sin, specifically human wickedness and rebellion as an expression of his holiness. So, because God is holy, he must punish all sin. God's wrath is the execution of his just judgment against those who violate and oppose his law. Another scholar writes, quoting, Wrath is an important theological category in Paul because it is associated with God's righteous judgment against those who are evil and disobey the truth. And he cites Romans 2, 5, and 8. He goes on, According to Paul, God cannot judge the world with justice without inflicting wrath on evildoers. And he cites Romans 3, 5. God's wrath, therefore, he says, is as necessary as God's grace and mercy. Although God's wrath against sin and those who practice it are currently being revealed, and he appeals to Romans 1.18, the day of judgment will be a time of wrath for the disobedient and a day of deliverance for the people of God. Romans 5.9 and 1 Thessalonians 5.9. He concludes, thus the coming wrath to which Paul refers in verse 10 is the wrath that will come on the day of judgment. Leon Morris adds to that, Quoting, when Paul speaks of the coming wrath, he brings before us the eschatological wrath. And so Paul is referring to eternal punishment, or what we commonly speak of as hell. Yet Morris qualifies this by reminding us that there are both present and future elements in view here. Quoting, the wrath of God is not only something that is experienced here and now, it will endure to the end of all things. Indeed, it will be especially manifested in the end of things. It is inevitable, a thought conveyed by the present participle 
It is coming even now. But we can't overlook the fact that one of the clearest pictures we have in all of Scripture of God's wrath, especially in Paul's letter, is the image of a sinless, suffering Savior who is said to be a propitiation for our sin, a helasterion, a propitiation, bearing in his own body the wrath of God against sin, so that those for whom he's dying will be delivered from the day of judgment. Romans 3.25 Paul says God's wrath is revealed in the preaching of the gospel. We see in a crucified Savior how seriously God takes sin, as the wrath of God is being revealed in the preaching of the gospel, because in the death of Jesus we see how seriously God regards human sin. But at the end of time, Christ's death will not turn aside the wrath of God toward those who have rejected his mercy, and who instead choose to stand before God in their own righteousness, which is the most foolish choice anyone could ever make. They will face the full fury of God's wrath without a mediator or an advocate. Michael Horton cautions us regarding what is now obvious. The wrath of God is not an easy concept to grasp nor fully understand. Michael writes, It is certainly true that the images of the last day in heaven and hell are communicated in apocalyptic form. Therefore, such images are not meant to be read like the morning newspaper. Nevertheless, they are also not meant to be ignored. They indicate realities that are beyond our conceptual grasp, yet are certain to come to fruition. To put the matter simply, there is coming a great and terrible day when those who reject the grace of God in Jesus Christ will receive eternal punishment in the form of being banished forever from God in the fires and outer darkness of hell. Whether literal or not, God's wrath is eternal punishment apart from the mediation of Jesus. Let's wrap up this episode of The Blessed Hope with a brief discussion of premillennialism, dispensationalism, and the idea of the wrath of God. Paul's contention that the day of God's wrath and the final judgment occurs when Jesus returns on the last day raises insurmountable difficulties for all forms of premillennialism. Premillenarians contend that Jesus returns to establish a millennial kingdom on the earth, and that kingdom is usually structured, depends on the writer, it's usually structured after the theocratic nation of Israel, with Jesus physically ruling over the earth from David's throne in Jerusalem. At the end of the millennial age, supposedly, Satan is released from the abyss, and he then organizes the nations who collectively revolt against Christ and his church. And the passage there would be Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. Premillenarians argue that in response to this final outbreak of evil, God casts Satan and his minions into the lake of fire, and only then does the final judgment take place, fully 1,000 years after Christ returns to deliver his people from the coming wrath of God. In light of this premillennial misinterpretation of the scene in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, supposedly occurring after our Lord's return, 
Instead of seeing John as referring to the entire interadvenal period and its end, premillenarians, including dispensationalists, must assert that God's eschatological wrath is not manifest until the thousand-year millennial age on the earth comes to an end. Both camps, premillenarians and dispensationalists, assert that they hold this view based upon what they claim to be a literal reading of an apocalyptic text. But the impossibility of the premillennial view becomes all too clear when Paul, in an epistle written to answer specific questions about the Lord's return, informs the Thessalonians that God's eschatological wrath occurs when Christ Jesus returns to deliver them, not 1,000 years later. This leaves no room for a millennial age on the earth after our Lord's return. None at all. The irony here, the pink elephant in the room, is that those who attempt to read apocalyptic literature literally, which is not how such literature ought to be read, are forced to insert gaps, which is a quite non-literal thing to do, so as to separate Christ's return from the final judgment. Paul tells us plainly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 9-10 that we're delivered from the wrath of God when Jesus returns at the end of the age, not a thousand years later. What is the justification for inserting the thousand-year gap, especially when you claim to read texts like this literally? All dispensationalists are premillennial, but not all premillenarians are dispensationalists. A key difference between the two is that the dispensationalist notion of God's people being spared from a future seven-year tribulation period, which they say is a time of unprecedented trouble and persecution brought about by an end-times antichrist. The tribulation supposedly begins with a rapture and ends when Jesus returns to destroy the antichrist during the final battle of Armageddon. The embrace of a supposed seven-year tribulation period also gives rise to the question and a once-heated source of debate, which is now relatively quiet, and that is whether or not someone is pre- or post-trib. When I'm asked about this, my answer is that the question itself is based upon a number of incorrect assumptions about the timing of the tribulation and the nature of the Lord's return. My view Reformed amillennialism is technically post-trib, but it's framed so very differently from the in-house debate among evangelicals, since I believe the Great Tribulation to encompass the entire interadvental period, and not a seven-year tribulation immediately before the Lord's return. Our dispensational brethren, about whom we'll have more to say later, contend that the wrath spoken of here by Paul is temporal. It's referring to the persecution from the Antichrist and those who do his bidding, and therefore is limited to the so-called seven-year tribulation period, supposedly predicted by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, 24-27. And I have an essay on this on the Riddle blog you may want to check out. Based upon Jesus' promise to the Church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3, verse 10, which reads, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. When Paul then speaks of the wrath to come in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, dispensationalists assert that he is referring to the wrath that the world experiences after the church has been removed from the earth in the rapture. 
And that persecution is brought about by the Antichrist and includes the various judgments of God brought upon the earth during this time, a view which is defended by John MacArthur, among others. It is important to point out that this hermeneutical chasing of one's tail, practiced by dispensationalists, arises from the unsubstantiated premise upon which the entire dispensational contention is grounded. I think somehow or another God's people avoid his temporal wrath during a future seven-year tribulation period. Dispensationalists believe that in Daniel 9, 24-7, particularly verse 25, Daniel is speaking of a future 70th week of Daniel, which commences at or about the time of the rapture. Believing Gentiles, the church, are removed from the earth during this time of temporal wrath, and that supposedly is what John means in Revelation 3, verse 10, about keeping his people from the hour of trial. Rather, I take Daniel 9 to be a messianic prophecy, which has been fulfilled by the coming of Jesus at his first advent. Daniel says nothing about a future seven-year tribulation because he's referring to Christ's messianic mission and events that are associated with his first advent in anticipation of the second. As we've seen, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 clearly points to the eternal wrath of God, which fits well within Paul's two age eschatology and the end of time and the dawn of eternity. Paul instructs the Thessalonians, and us, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. One of the dispensational stalwarts from a prior generation, J. Dwight Pentecost, in his book Things to Come, argues that this text, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10, is proof, he says, that the rapture occurs before the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. He writes, quoting, Paul clearly indicates that our expectation is not wrath, but the revelation of his Son from heaven. This could not be unless the Son were revealed before the wrath of the 70th week falls on the earth. Well, that view, too, collapses under the weight of Paul's assertion that eschatological wrath occurs when Jesus returns, not a full 1,000 years later. Now, ironically, in one profound sense, Pentecost is absolutely right. Yes, God's people are delivered from the wrath to come. But Paul isn't talking about temporal wrath from an end times antichrist during a future seven-year tribulation. He's speaking of final eschatological wrath on Judgment Day. When dispensationalists like Pentecost limit God's wrath here to some sort of temporal wrath and contend that God did not appoint believers to experience such things, a number of obvious questions arise, those nasty unintended consequences again. If true, what does this say to those Christians who fell to Roman persecution in Paul's day? Was that not some sort of temporal wrath? If so, why were Christians not delivered from it? And what about the countless martyrs who have fought various satanic beasts and false prophets and antichrists throughout the long ages past? Are we really to believe that if the saints and the martyrs were not removed before facing such wrath that they really would have been better off living at the time of the rapture when Christians will be spared from such things? What does this mean for the martyrs and the saints? Dispensationalism has long created much confusion about eschatological matters. Granted, all with the best of intentions, 
defending the literal reading of the Bible, a claim they simply cannot keep when they insert a 1,000-year gap between Christ's second advent and the final judgment, especially when it is painfully obvious, or at least should be, that Paul is here speaking of eschatological wrath, final judgment, from which Jesus delivers us through his redemptive work, and that Paul is not referring to some sort of temporal wrath the nations will supposedly face in a future seven-year tribulation. That's not in Paul's mind. On the other hand, the Christian believer has the glorious hope that Christ's return does not mean God's wrath will fall upon them, because at Calvary, Jesus has already delivered his people from the wrath of God and eternal punishment, which is faced by those who reject the gospel and who dare to stand before God on Judgment Day clothed only in the rags of their own righteousness. Paul's doctrine of the return of Jesus Christ gives comfort and hope to believers and was never intended to fuel dispensational prognostications. The wrath of God is clearly a difficult subject, but we need not fear it because for all those who trust in Jesus to save you from your sins, your judgment day has already taken place at Calvary, when Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God for us and in our place. Next time, we'll look at Paul's defense of his ministry in Thessalonica, his discussion of the kingdom of God, which is another very important element of Paul's eschatology, and we'll tackle one of the most difficult texts in all of Paul's letters, his assigning of blame to the Jewish religious leaders for the death of Jesus, and how that provoked God's wrath upon the nation. That's tough stuff, but as we'll see, context is everything. Thanks for listening, and until next time, Maranatha, the Lord come.